Welcome back to the show that tells you, you are a quantum computer with free will, experiencing this present moment in real time, thanks to quantum information traveling backwards from the future. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 15 of the Quantum Consciousness series. The topic of today's episode is quantum time travel, also known as backward time referral. This is a curious property that emerges from the time reversibility in quantum computation. By the end of today's episode, we'll be asking the question, how do you have a single unified experience of this present moment when there's so many different brain regions contributing information to that experience? This episode is available on YouTube and an audio-only version is available on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, then please like this video, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and huff a metaphysical loop. Zero concepts become objects and then become quadia. Join us for an episode of quantum consciousness. The plan for today's episode is to give a brief recap of the orchestrated objective reduction model that was introduced in the previous episode, and then talk about some experiments in quantum mechanics that revealed the weird nature of time within a quantum system. And we'll talk about this notion of time reversibility in quantum computation, and then we'll wrap up the episode talking about how this might contribute to your subjective experience, some interesting experimental psychology experiments, and then talking about how multiple brain regions might be using quantum computation to generate a unified experience in real time using these principles of quantum time travel or backward time referral. So to begin with, last week we talked about orchestrated objective reduction. This is the model by which quantum computation is created within microtubules in neurons in the brain. And this is an interesting and somewhat controversial model that exploded onto the scene in the mid-90s. And I have a number of previous episodes sort of detailing the motivations for this uh, model and, and what it really is all about. But I wanted to give a brief recap on the key components of that as they relate to today's video. So in that previous episode, we talked about how tubulin, which are the proteins that make up microtubules, are critical for creating quantum bits. And so I talked about coherence as this notion where at the core of these proteins, you have sort of a barrier from the environment given the nonpolar nature of this core and there's limited environmental influence and so you can create a coherent quantum bit in the core of these microtubules. And then once these quantum bits are established, in order to generate a quantum computation, you essentially want to get more and more qubits involved in the computation. And typically this is done in quantum computation via entanglement. So you're taking many, many qubits, getting them entangled with each other, and then the number of qubits that are entangled is equivalent to the computational power of your quantum computer. And so I wanted to draw sort of a key distinction here between coherence, the ability to generate a qubit, and then entanglement, which is the process by which a bunch of these qubits are then wrapped up into a, into a single quantum computation. 
And so one thing I wanted just to, to mention, because today we'll be diving into entanglement in a lot of detail, is that this is a speculative model, and there is a lot of work that needs to be done to sort of validate or prove that this model is possible in the brain. And I could devote many, many episodes to what are the challenges with generating macroscopic quantum systems or making these quantum bits in biology. But frankly, there is so much work that still needs to be done. And so I feel like it's a better use of our time to focus in on the implications to consciousness and to emphasize that this is really an engineering problem. So here's a couple examples of what I mean. So when I first started teaching a class on quantum consciousness, we were talking about the idea that a qubit could be created and sustained in biology. And 10 years ago, it was nearly impossible to imagine that a quantum bit could be sustained or could be quantum coherent for more than, you know, sub picoseconds, sub nanoseconds, like very, very extremely small amounts of time. But as I was searching this recently, um, there are examples of quantum bits being sustained in the past year up to 22 milliseconds. And so just to emphasize how many orders of magnitude that is, we're talking about millions and billion times more amount of time that these quantum bits are able to be sustained. And this engineering is ongoing right now. So 10 years ago, if you said, oh, there's going to be a quantum bit that could last for multiple milliseconds, people would say that that's completely impossible, could never happen. And so when we talk about these quantum computational models in the brain, maybe we're talking about a quantum bit that's being sustained for multiple seconds. This is once again viewed as completely impossible, can never happen. But clearly this is just like an engineering problem, right? There are fundamental hurdles to overcome and I'm not belittling those hurdles. But this is an engineering problem. This is theoretically achievable. And already in the past 10 years, we have come, you know, a billion times closer to realizing a multi-second qubit than we were able to realize, yeah, 10 years ago. So this is a rapidly evolving field. And this is really the source of a lot of innovation in technology right now. And so just because we can't imagine how that would be occurring does not mean it's impossible and does not mean that there's a lot of work going into it. And the second question is, how is this happening in biology? How are these proteins able to sustain quantum effects, if at all? And, and the question is, why haven't we seen these, uh, you know, the evidence of this until now? And I just want to emphasize that our tools for investigating protein dynamics are extremely limited. So right now it is pretty much impossible slash very challenging and a lot of limitations associated with viewing proteins dynamically. Most of our methods for imaging proteins come from crystallizing or freezing these proteins and then using these complicated methods to understand the structure of these proteins. I mean, we are barely able of visualizing and understanding the shape of these proteins let alone the dynamics. So the field of protein dynamics is extremely limited and there's a lot of emerging techniques and tools to sort of visualize the proteins as they're performing their functions, but we don't really understand how proteins are folded. 
what makes them coherently move and act as they shift conformational states. And so, you know, when it comes to the idea, like, is there a quantum core at the center of the protein, which is essential to its function, um, as we've talked about in the previous episodes, we are fundamentally limited in our ability to even visualize or view these proteins. And so just like with that quantum bit example, the quantum bit is now able to last 20 milliseconds in these particular examples in the lab, you know, is a protein able to sustain quantum coherence at its internal core? We are barely even able to visualize proteins. And then when we do visualize them, it's outside of the context of like their natural organic functioning. So there are fundamental limitations in scientific study of proteins and fundamental limitations in us trying to build these quantum computers. So anyways, jury is out potentially, but I really encourage you to think deeply, is it a digital computer model of the universe that you're running with or is it a quantum computational model of the universe? Because like I've said in previous episodes, Quantum computation is the fundamental state of reality. Digital computation is an outcropping, a simplified version of quantum computation. And so, you know, what is your model of the universe? If you reject quantum computation in proteins and in neurons, then are you asserting a digital computer framework? And then you now have to grapple with all the fundamental limitations of digital computer frameworks. Girdle's incompleteness theorem, numbers of, of limitations, right? So we are going to move forward today, assuming quantum computation in the brain has been figured out. Is it microtubules? Is it some sort of emergent property in the phospholipid bilayer membrane? Whatever. We will figure it out with time. And let's just run with the assumption that quantum computation is occurring. And then what is the fallout of that assumption, right? So if we move forward in time to a place where quantum computation is, is available in biology, this is a whole new space of things that we need to start grappling with, right? And so part of my role and my interest is in describing if we're a quantum computational system, what does that mean for consciousness? What does that mean for our sense of self? And so what are the properties of quantum computation and how might they then relate to our experience? The next topic is reversibility in quantum computation. And now this is a very interesting property of quantum computation, which is not found in digital computation. So in digital computation, let's just use the example of the AND gate. So in the AND gate, you have two bits coming into the gate. They can either be zero or one. And then the output of the gate is if both of the input bits are one, then the output bit is one. If the input bits are zero and one, zero, zero, or one, zero, then the output bit is gonna be zero. So after we put these two bits into the AND gate and we get that one output bit, do we know what the two input bits were? So if we have a one, then yes. If the output bit is a one, we know that both of the input bits were one. But if the output bit is zero, then we don't know what the input bits were. They could have been zero and zero, they could have been zero and one, or they could have been one and zero. We don't know. That information was deleted by the gate, right? That digital logic and gate deleted some information. In quantum computation, 
your logic gates, your quantum logic gates are not allowed to delete information. And this is this really weird property, but the unitary evolution of the wave function within a quantum computer requires time reversibility. And this means that the output of your gates as you've put the, uh, the quantum information through this circuit, by the end of the quantum circuit, you need to be able to reversibly run that information backwards and figure out the starting position of the system, right? And so there's this weird idea that time is reversible within a quantum computation. And this time reversibility is very bizarre and just like a lot of these quantum principles that we're talking about, they sort of violate our simple ideas of what it means to have sort of a traditional local causal system where this thing is here and that thing is here and they just sort of influence each other a little bit, right? And so to highlight a little bit of the, the weirdness that comes with the time reversibility, I'm gonna go through two different experiments. One is called Wheeler's Delayed Choice Experiment, and the other one is called Delayed Choice Entanglement Swapping. So the first one deals directly with superposition, and the second one deals directly with entanglement, and then we'll go through a psychology experiment, and then we'll, we'll speculate on you know, what this really means um, for our brains. So to begin with, Wheeler's Delayed Choice Experiment. So in Wheeler's Delayed Choice Experiment, we're looking at our favorite quantum experiment, the double slit experiment. So this is the idea that you have a single photon, a single electron, just like a single quantum system coming towards these two different slits. As the system evolves, it's going to go into a superposition of going through both of the slits simultaneously. And then on the other side of the slits, you're gonna have an interference pattern where these two different waves coming out of both of the slits are constructively or destructively interfering with each other such that a measurement on the far wall is gonna give you this interference pattern which has this sort of rippling shape to it where there's an amplification of the probability amplitude in some locations and a destruction of the probability amplitude in other locations. And so even though when you measure it, you only get one particle on the far wall, the probability of where you measure that particle upon repeated experimentation is given by this uh, interference pattern distribution. And then if we add an observer or some sort of atom, something that can just register the presence of the quantum system at one of the slits, now when it travels towards those two slits, it's gonna get measured to be either in the left slit or the right slit. And then there's no more interference pattern at the back wall because just the, the inclusion of this measurement has now destroyed the wave function and now there's just, it's either on the left or it's on the right on the far wall. Okay, so that sort of lays out this notion of we're moving forward in time, we're interfering at the slits and then we're gonna get measured at the far wall. But now we're gonna sort of bend your mind around this experiment and mess with the causal chain of events here. So in Wheeler's delayed choice experiment, we are going to use telescopes to view which of the slits the particle really went through. And these little telescopes are positioned 
after the slits, right? And we're also gonna have that wall. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna position the telescopes aimed at the slits, but we're gonna put it behind the wall. And if we didn't have the wall at all, then the telescopes would reduce the wave function and you'd be able to see which of the slits it went through, right? This is the equivalent of having a measuring device at the slits. And with the wall, if you're not measuring the slits with telescopes, if the system just hits the wall, you get the interference pattern. Now check this out. So we shoot an electron through both of the slits. After the electron has passed through the slits, right? The electron has already moved through that part of the experiment. Now we have a wall with the two telescopes behind it. And now we're gonna make a decision. We could use the random number generator. We could just push a button. And we're gonna choose, do we wanna rapidly remove that wall? And now it's telescopes. Or do we wanna keep the wall there and the telescopes are doing nothing? We make the decision to remove the wall. This is just one of the examples, right? Now, that electron behaves like a particle. But what's weird about this, it already moved through the slits. So we're making a measurement and we're making a decision of how to measure, but our decision of how to measure that system therefore changes in our sort of classical way of viewing which of the slits it really went through. So I'll let that sink in a bit, right? So we are making a decision after it goes through, and this is sort of changing what the electron is doing in the past, so to say, right? It's a decision in the future affecting what we typically think of as being the past. How does this make any sense? Well, because when the electron is traveling, it's this unitary evolution, this evolution of the wave function according to the Schrodinger equation. And that is a unitary process and it doesn't really matter when the measurement occurs because all of that is just like a unified system, a unified state of being um, that's kind of smeared across time rather than kind of happening in discrete moments of time. And we'll come back to this idea, but essentially time is produced through measurement, right? And so there's sort of this ratcheting of, of information into the future via measurement, but when it's in superposition, it's in this uh, quantum probability state, it's just smeared across time and there is no sense of time because measurement creates time in a weird way. All right, entanglement. So here's our example of entanglement. So the, the simple example that, that we gave in the past is that you have, let's say, a photon. It goes through some crystal that shoots it into two different sister photons. And those sister photons are related. And let's just say the, the relation that they have is that if one is measured up, the other one's measured down and vice versa, right? So the measurements are sort of um, anti-correlated with each other. Or well, there's a strong correlation, but it's, a, uh, it's in like the opposite direction, right? And so this can happen, and it doesn't really matter when you measure the two uh, photons, you measure one, and then when you measure the other one, it's gonna have the opposite relation. And so it doesn't really matter when you make the measurement, and the measurements relative to each other will just be correlated, 
And it's kind of this weird idea of like, depending on what I choose to measure this, uh, this photon with, you know, I could measure it this way, I can measure it that way. Depending on how I measure it, um, it's going to influence the other, the state of the other, the other photon. And so one weird way of thinking about this is like the two photons just kind of are the same photon. They always are kind of connected to each other. They just have one wave function. And so anything done to one of the or one part of this wave function affects the whole thing, right? It's just like one thing spread throughout space and time. Um, and so measuring part of it affects the whole thing, obviously, right? So now we're going to mess with that entanglement phenomenon a little bit. So let's say we have two sets of entangled photons, right? A and B and C and D. A and B are entangled, C and D are entangled. Now we're gonna measure photon A and we're gonna measure photon C. So we have in each of our entangled pairs, we're gonna measure one of each of those photons. And then there's this bizarre property in quantum mechanics where we can do something to the photons where we essentially can entangle those remaining photons, D and B, we can make the decision to entangle those photons. And there's this property that you can manipulate in quantum mechanics where by entangling those two, you're also entangling the other two. So you're kind of swapping the entanglement, right? So this is called delayed choice entanglement swapping because you're saying, okay, I'm gonna swap around the entanglement relationships such that D and B become entangled and then A and C are now entangled. Whereas previously A and B and C and D were entangled. So we can perform some transformation on the system to make that the case. We can swap entanglements. Here's where it gets weird. So we measure A and C. Now we can make the decision. Do we want to entangle D and B to each other? If we choose to make that entanglement, then now, what does that mean? It means that A and C are entangled. But wait a minute. We've already measured A and C. Correct. You've already measured A and C, and now those measurements are now correlated with each other. So by virtue of making this decision to entangle two photons in the future, you now affect the probability distribution or the correlation between these two photons that have already been measured. This is wild, right? So this really um, sort of bends our notion of, of time around. So while you're in the state of superposition or while you're in the state of um, quantum flux, there's this shared probability space and you can make measurements upon the system and this sort of violates a lot of our notions of causality. And so one thing to keep in mind is that we are not able to send classical information via entanglement. So it would be cool if we were able to transmit information faster than the speed of light via entanglement, but we are limited in our ability to transfer classical information. So classical information being bits, binary, zeros and ones. You cannot use entanglement to transfer information classically. However, it appears that you're able to transmit 
probability distribution or quantum information faster than the speed of light. So you can't send classical information faster than the speed of light, but you can send quantum information, AKA a movement in these probability distributions, right? These quantum systems have some sort of wave function state. You can perform influences like rotations or some sort of, you know, th these are like quantum computations are shifting or moving these probability distributions around. You're able to do that faster than the speed of light. And it looks like quantum information can sort of violate classical notions of time. And so it seems to violate classical notions of causality, but it doesn't quite, right? So you cannot, in quantum time travel, go backwards in time and kill your grandpa, right? Because that would violate classical causality and it leads to all this um, these weird time paradoxes, right? Where if you're able to then violate the causal structure of reality, paradoxes emerge and then it just doesn't make sense, right? And we talked about things not making sense um, and how things have to make sense in a, in a previous episode on the foundation of mathematics. So with these quantum information transmissions through time, backwards in time, through space, instantaneously, you're not violating traditional notions of causality. You're not introducing time paradox because all you're influencing are these probability distributions, right? And so this is a kind of like a, a hack or a workaround in some ways. Um, but the idea is that there's sort of a backward time referral where choices made on a quantum system in the future affect the probability distribution in the past. And so because of that soft, fuzzy nature of the probability distribution, you're not creating time paradoxes because it's more of an influence than like a causal change. All right, so now I'm gonna bring this back to a psychology experiment. So Benjamin Libet is a famous psychologist and he did a lot of interesting experiments and we'll talk about one of them today, although there are multiple really interesting ones that we probably will eventually talk about. But Benjamin Libet is conducting an experiment where he's measuring electrical brain activity and he's delivering brain stimulation. And so in this example, you have the standard thing which happens where if I, if something touches my skin, then there's an electrical potential generated in my sensory cortex related to that touch. So there's a hand region in my somatosensory cortex. When something touches my skin, an electrical potential is generated in my sensory cortex. And then following that electrical potential, that immediate reaction, which is happening within roughly 30 milliseconds of my hand being touched, there's a bunch of neural activity that is sustained into the future for roughly 500 milliseconds. So about half a second of time, there's a bunch of uh, electrical activity occurring in somatic sensory cortex. But I have the conscious experience of feeling that touch in the moment. And there's ways of sort of creating visual representations of time and allowing participants or people in your study to be able to, to correctly identify when they feel a touch by using these, these sort of visual um, 
displays of time in like this millisecond precision. And so there's, there's methods or there's techniques at place to be able to figure out when someone is having an experience to, you know, a certain degree of accuracy. So you have the conscious experience of feeling a touch pretty much right around the time when the touch occurs. There's a very little delay in that conscious experience, even though the brain activity takes a certain amount of time to, to keep processing that information. And so what's very strange is that if I use electrical brain stimulation, and Benjamin Libet conducted these experiments, and I think he was stimulating um, a region in thalamus, which projects directly into the somatosensory cortex, he delivers electrical stimulation there, and that generates an identical electrical potential in somatosensory cortex. However, the stimulation stops, and so it doesn't deliver enough stimulation, and the people don't feel anything. So just generating that electrical potential is not enough to um, have the experience. However, if you directly stimulate sensory cortex and you apply stimulation for a full 500 milliseconds, then at the end of that amount of stimulation, you have the experience of having to touch and it occurs at the end of, of that stimulation. So I know that's a lot of information, but to break it down, Benjamin Libet's explanation for this pattern of findings. So there's a certain amount of neural activity that needs to occur in order to generate that experience of the sensory activity. And so if you directly stimulate the brain, boom, 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 you're going to generate that near the end of the stimulation, right? There's neuronal adequacy that's reached by the end of that 500 milliseconds of stimulation. If you get a natural touch, you have that electrical potential that occurs and then a bunch of neural activity happens and then it reaches neuronal adequacy and you feel the touch. But if you just generate that initial evoked potential in somatosensory cortex, but you don't deliver enough stimulation to reach neuronal adequacy, then you don't have that feeling of touch. So what Benjamin Libet sort of concludes from this is that there is backward time referral where that you reach enough neuronal adequacy, enough neural activity happens, and then that information is then somehow informing that initial evoked potential, right? So that, that evoked potential somehow is acquiring information from all of this activity happening in the subsequent 500 milliseconds. So all of this sounds like precognition, extrasensory perception, right? It sounds a little, uh, a little wacky. So like, what is going on here? How do we make sense of these findings? And one idea is that quantum mechanics might be able to step in and provide an explanation for this, right? And so this is um, theory developed by Stuart Hameroff and Nancy Wolf. The idea is, is that within a quantum computation, you have room for backward time referral. And so if there was some quantum computation occurring in the brain, you would be able to then access this information as it's being computed into the future. So what does this actually look like? So the idea here 
is that you have all of these visual regions, right? Information from the outside world comes in. The second that visual information hits your brain, there's this massive visually evoked potential that goes through early visual cortex. And then that information is passed up the hierarchy to the next region, to the next region, to the next region. All these regions are computing that same visual information, right? Data from the retina is very raw. And then you have to figure out, are there lines? Are there contours? Do those contours make a shape? Does that shape equal something in my memory? Does that thing in the memory present any immediate benefit or threat to me, right? So there's all these stages of computation that need to occur about the same information. The same information is being processed over and over and over and over by different regions for different purposes. Different types of information are being integrated or accessed in each of these different brain regions but you have this immediate visually evoked potential. So the theory goes, if your brain has quantum computation, if you are a quantum computer and these neurons have quantum computational access or they, they are quantum computers, then you could describe or develop a system by which the quantum computation is sustained into the future and then that quantum computation is simultaneously, remember that like unitary evolution of the wave function, it's all time reversible. So if you were able to, in visual cortex, start off a quantum computation and you sustain it for let's say 500 milliseconds, there's a quantum computation sustained in visual cortex, now, we entangle visual cortex with another part of the brain and we entangle visual cortex with another part of the brain. We keep entangling it with more and more regions of the brain. And then those regions are now quantum computing, generating some information regarding that input. And if we're able to sustain that quantum computation in visual, then it's gonna receive information from all of these other systems. And so the idea is, could you have quantum information traveling backwards in time to that initial evoked potential, right? And so this seems to violate traditional notions of causality, but in a quantum computation, you're allowed to do this. And so if we are able to keep a computation going and how I kind of imagine this might take place is that you're only measuring part of the system. So if you think back to that entanglement swapping example, we are measuring one of the photons in like the photon pair and then we can still manipulate that other photon and then that has a backward time referral to influence the probability distribution of the initial measurement, right? So that initial visually evoked potential is a measurement. It is a real event that occurs, changes the time course of the future, right? But there's quantum information that's able to flow backward and influence the distribution of that initial measurement. And so if we're sustaining this quantum computation into the future, entangling it with all these different brain regions, you can then quantum compute additional information that then informs that initial measurement. So the idea here is that if the quantum computation can sustain, 
then time reversibility applies and then some information will, will reach that, that early cortex. If your brain got destroyed or the quantum computation got destroyed, then you wouldn't have that influence coming backwards, right? So that quantum computer needs to be running into the future. It's reaching neuronal adequacy. It's reaching the end of its computation in the future, and then it comes backwards. If that computation does not run, then it does not go backwards, right? It seems like a, a simple outcropping, but, but the idea is that it has to run, and if the quantum computation can be sustained, then that amount of time that it's sustained for has this time reversibility at play. Wow. So yeah, that is a lot and uh, take it or leave it. But let's think some more about what that would mean. So from a consciousness perspective or for, from an experiential perspective, what does this mean? Maybe the theory goes you could have an integrated visual gestalt, a complex moment in time informed by a lot of information and so the workaround here is we cannot send digital information backward in time but we can send quantum information backward in time if your mind is a quantum computer and we talk about qualia the subjective feeling of this the subjective feeling of this or that right the the hurt in the pain the the redness of the color red we don't really know what qualia or subjectivity really is what if subjectivity is in the quantum information domain? Your subjective experience is, is quantum information. It's not digital information. That would mean that the quantum information could, could move forward and backward in time within the confines of that single quantum computation being run, right? So you can't just like arbitrarily move forward and backward in time. It's only within the confines of a sustained superposition that time is, is now reversible, right? So what if the information being passed backwards is subjectivity, is the quantum information is your subjective experience and we're integrating and passing backwards all this information and so in a weird way, you know, we're trying to figure out where is your mind in the quantum computation? Is it at the measurement? In that moment of measurement, your mind happens. Maybe all the quantum information gets passed backwards from these other regions in the visual hierarchy or prefrontal or all these other regions contributing to this information processing gets propagated backwards into that visually evoked potential. And you have this integrated experience of that moment in time and it has the richness in the detail of all this quantum information which was computed in the future right so your brain according to this theory is constantly processing the immediate future and then you have this vivid experience of the present moment and the present moment is informed by computations that are that have to be processed into the future because they can't happen that quickly, right? And so the idea is that a lot of our conscious experience is sort of informed by information in the future in the future, but it's like a subjective type of information, so it doesn't violate notions of causality, but it's a way to generate everything happening in one moment, right? And so this is sort of a non-trivial 
binding problem is what is typically called in psychology. We're like, how do we get all this information into one moment in time? If you have all these brain regions like processing the same information over and over and over again, why don't we have the experience of like, we see a cartoon and then it slowly gets filled in with detail, right? That would be like the very linear, digital, classical expectation that you have a simple bad drawing of something and then more and more detail is filled in over time. But really we just are hit with all this detail constantly all the time. All this information is present and so how does it all get integrated into a moment? And so the backward time referral gives you a way to say, you know, we're going to route information from the future into the present moment when it's needed, when it happens. And then we're going to influence those probability distributions with that quantum information. And then the subjective experience of what that's like is to sort of have the feeling of what happens already. So the feeling, the subjectivity of all that information processing is occurring simultaneously to you. You are tapped in to that time reversibility. And so it's happening in this moment. Everything relevant into the future is, is happening right now for you in this moment. Um, so, you know, leaps and bounds of speculation. But if we were to dive into the quantum computer metaphor of your life or you know moving beyond metaphor into what this would really be like could something like this be possible so some of the the phenomena that this tries to address is the fact that it seems that there's a lot of stuff that humans do which requires a really fast time frame for processing so for example um, uh, a common example given is baseball where the pitcher throws the ball at 90 miles per hour and the person needs to react and swing a bat. And this is considered one of the ultimate feats in any sporting activity is the ability to hit a fastball traveling at 90 miles per hour. It seems to defy a lot of the classical notions of, of processing, right? There's a few hacks using quantum computers that could speed it up. For one, we could have these, you know, exponential processing rates that are occurring, right? So it's still sort of a, a linear causal series of events, but you just have an exponential speed up in the processing. And so our estimates of the computational power of the brain are totally wrong. And it's actually just happening so much more dynamically and rapidly. And we're, we're so much more computationally powerful than we realize. And so you can compute all this information in the time span of the baseball traveling at 90 miles per hour. The other option is that we have quantum information traveling backwards from the future that's influencing the probability distribution of the moment. So it is too fast for your brain to process the fastball but your brain is able to sustain a quantum computation into the future and the information regarding that fastball is being computed by brain regions for 500 milliseconds, maybe even longer beyond that present moment. And then the quantum information regarding that baseball and that whole experience is passed backwards in time into the moment and it influences the probability distribution of your future actions. So you swing the baseball bat, you react to the baseball in the present moment based on probabilistic information regarding the quantum computation that's going beyond that event, right? 
And so this would seem to violate our traditional notions of linear causality in time, but it's not really because it's just the probability distribution of you hitting the ball, right? So it's influencing your actions. It's influencing what you choose to do in that moment, but it's not directly sending digital information from the future. So what it might feel like is you're in that moment about to hit the baseball and you go, oh yeah, I can totally hit this right now. And you have like this gut feeling, right? This subjective experience of this is what I need to do right now. But you don't know that that's what you need to do right now. You just have a feeling, right? So what if quantum information is more like a feeling. It's more like a gut instinct. And this is what gut instincts are, right? Or something to that degree. It's more like a feeling of what you should do, a shift in your probability distribution of action. But it's not truly changing the past. This information quantum computed into the future that's being backward time referred, it's not changing the past, it's just giving you a little subjective push, a little probability distribution towards try to hit the ball, try not to hit the ball, right? And that subjectivity does not violate traditional notions of, of causality. So you can't go backwards in time and kill your grandpa and then never exist. There's no time paradox here, but there's a feeling of a time paradox, <laughs> a small inkling of, of, of breaking the causal notions of time. All right, so that wraps up this uh, really fun notion of backward time referral. Um, the pitch here is that this is happening in all quantum computations, and it's sort of a, a complex series of when do I measure my system? Can I sustain a fraction of my brain region in quantum coherence and then measure part of it in the moment? And then there's some influence of that quantum information back on that original measurement. So you're still converting the moment classically into bits of information, but there's some backward information, only quantum information influencing that measurement into the future. And so architectures of the brain might be selectively choosing when to measure certain parts and what parts to keep sustained into the future. This generates a lot of testable predictions that might be interesting to go to go look into. And, and part of this might be dictated by, you know, we talked about this in the previous episode, this actin gel, which is able to solidify into a gel state or release itself into water, a liquid state. And then in the liquid state, it gets measured. In the gel state, it does not get measured. And so is the brain sort of selectively engineered to keep parts of itself in superposition, in a quantum computing phase, and then other parts are allowed to be digitized. And maybe there's a complex interplay where if the, the digitized part of the brain was originally a part of the quantum computation, then there might be an influence on the future quantum computation onto that measurement if, if they're entangled parts of the brain. So, whew, a lot to think about. Uh, very fun chatting with you. Talk to you again really soon.